Well, Happy New Year. It's good to see you. Glad to be back in the house together. Yes? It feels like forever. It's only been a couple weeks, but uh, I have missed you, so it's good to be here with you. Uh, but hey, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab it. Today we are in week 14 of uh, a series on the book of Genesis, and so we're going to be in Genesis 15 together. Genesis chapter 15. In a recent message, I shared with you that back in 2006, about a year after my wife and I got married, we moved to Miami, Florida to help a friend of ours plant a church. We had prayed for several months about going and really sensed the Lord calling us to go, and so we went. And we went with great expectations of changing that city for the glory of God, but unfortunately, our experience didn't line up with those expectations. Uh, From day one, it was a struggle. Personally, my schedule was insane. I was working in business sales at the time, and so I was in my office at 7.30 in the morning, didn't leave until 6 at night, and then I was doing church work in the evenings. Our marriage was rocky. You know, people always tell you that year one of your marriage is really difficult. Year one for us was a breeze. Year two was absolutely brutal. It was in that year that I learned marriage is actually hard work. All you single people in the room, you need to write that down and remember it. Marriage is hard work, and only by the grace of God did our marriage survive year two. In addition, the church never got traction. There were literally Sundays when the only people in the room were the couples who moved from Georgia to Florida to start the thing. And so eight months in, we decided to shut the doors, and we called it quits. I can honestly tell you today that there have only been two seasons in my life where I have struggled with feelings of depression. That was one of them. Man, I can remember days where I'd be out running sales calls, and I would pull into a parking lot somewhere, and I would sit there for hours at times, and in frustration, I would just say to God, all right, God, what's the deal? Like, God, where are you? Do you care that I'm feeling this way? You see, the feelings I was wrestling with started to cause me to doubt God in ways that were new for me. I doubted his power. I doubted his presence. I doubted his care. I doubted his calling on my life. Like, I could not understand why God would call us to that city if things were going to go the way that they were going. And every single time, God would meet me in those moments, and he would remind me, James, as hard as life is right now, Don't you ever forget, I love you, I'm with you, and I'm for you. And it was in that season God taught me a very valuable lesson about doubt and faith. And the lesson was this, that doubt can either deepen or destroy your faith. The deciding factor is where you direct your doubt when it occurs. If you're taking notes, I want you to write that down. This is the big truth we're going to draw out of our text today. Let me just say it again. Doubt can either deepen or destroy your faith. And the deciding factor is where you direct your doubt when it occurs. Would you just look up at me for a moment? If you, I want to know that all of you hear me when I say this because this is really important. If you ever decide to take your faith seriously, if you ever decide to think deeply about the things of God, or if you're that person who's here today and you're going, okay, you know what, 2019, this is going to be my year where I finally start following hard after Jesus. Listen, there is a high probability that along the way you will experience feelings of doubt. See, my friends, doubt is a natural part of walking in faith. And it's so important that some of you know this because I know some of you have shown up today and you're either thinking or you've been taught in the past that doubt is wrong and that it's sinful. But I just need to tell you that's not biblical at all, right? Disbelief is wrong and doubt when left unchecked can lead you there. But doubt in and of itself isn't wrong at all. 
In fact, when directed properly, doubt can help to deepen your faith. I want to show you what I mean. All right, if your Bibles are open to Genesis 15, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Check it out. The Bible says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now, we'll stop there and talk, all right? Uh, Verse 1 says that after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Well, after what things? After the things that happened back in Genesis 14. All right, if you weren't here before Christmas, I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version of the story. For those of you that were here before Christmas, no, I'm not going to read all those names again, all right? And if you have no idea what I mean, just read the text and you'll discover what I'm talking about. But, but the story goes like this, all right? There were five kings ruling over cities in the Jordan Valley region where Abram's nephew Lot was living at the time. And for 12 years, those five kings paid taxes to a coalition of four kings from the east. Well, in year 13, they decided, we don't want to pay taxes anymore. And so they rebelled. Well, those four kings decided, we're not okay with that. We're going to teach those guys a lesson. And so they attacked them. They defeated them. And uh, they started invading their cities and taking all these supplies and people. Well, one of the people they took was Abram's nephew, Lot. And so this unnamed person comes and finds Abram and says, hey, dude, just wanted to let you know there's been a battle. Things didn't go so well. Lot, your nephew, was taken by these foreign armies. And I love his response He gathers up 318 men that he had trained for battle, and he pursues those four kings for about 120 miles to this city called Dan, where he pulls off in the middle of the night this seemingly impossible victory, right? He and his guys attack these kings and their armies, defeat them, and then they brought back all that had been taken. Now, I imagine that after that, Abram probably wrestled with feelings of fear and anxiety on a daily basis. I mean, come on, put yourself in his shoes for a moment, if you will. If you were him, don't you think you'd be looking over your shoulder constantly, always wondering, are those dudes about to come back with some major reinforcements and show up on my doorstep and take me out? I mean, he'd literally just punched the bully in the face and ran away. I think that's exactly what he was feeling, which is why God comes to him in a vision with a very specific word. Abram, don't be afraid. Don't live your life in a constant state of panic. I'm your shield or I'm your protector. Right, Abram, you just need to remember, dude, I've told you that I'm going to defend you against all your enemies. So even if those guys do show back up, it doesn't matter. The battle is mine. In addition, your reward will be very great. So not only am I your protector, I'm your provision. Like, don't you worry about those guys taking anything from you. Just remember my promise. I'm going to bless you richly, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Now, I'm curious. Have you ever had the word of the Lord come to you like that? And your immediate response was, yeah, I'm not so sure. Some of you are shaking your head, right? Like, maybe you were spending time in the word alone. 
Uh, you were talking about the word with some friends in a small group. Maybe you were in church somewhere. Maybe here listening to a guy like me or me preach this with passion and conviction. And you're sitting in your seat thinking to yourself, I'd really love to believe what I'm hearing right now, but I have some serious doubts. Have you ever been there? I mean, come on, be honest. 10 o'clock, are you alive out there? Have you been there? Yes. This is exactly where Abram found himself in this moment. The word of the Lord comes to him, and he doesn't respond to that word in faith. Oh my gosh, thank you God, that's awesome news, this helps so much. No, he responds to the word of the Lord with doubt. He says back to him, alright God, well what are you going to give me? I mean, you've made all these promises to me, to bless me, to make my name great, to make me the father of a great nation. But God, it doesn't seem like you're doing anything to come through on what you've promised. See, Abram was about 85 years old at this point in his life, and he and his wife Sarai had no kids. That's a problem, isn't it? I mean, it's pretty much impossible to father a nation if you don't have any kids. And I don't know about you, I don't know too many 85-year-old couples that are having kids. And so Abram says back to God, at this rate, my servant Eleazar is going to be my heir. Well, the word of the Lord comes to him a second time, and he says to him, I love it, doesn't even call Eleazar by his name. He goes, look, this man ain't going to be your heir. Abram, your very own son will be your heir. This is the first time that God promises Abram that a son will come from his very own body. And then he takes him outside, and he just says, Abram, would you just look up? Just look up. In Genesis 13, 16, he told Abram to look down. Do you remember this if you were here? He says, Abram, uh, I'm going to give you so many offspring that their numbers will be comparable to the dust of the earth that is beneath your feet. And he's saying the same thing here about the stars. Abram, I just want you to look. Do you see all the stars? Like, dude, if you could number the stars, your offspring would be comparable to their number. I know it doesn't make sense. I know that you're worried right now, but you have to trust me. I'm going to do for you what I've promised to do. And I love God's response because from it we learn a very simple and powerful truth, and it's this, that God is patient with doubters. Come on, that's good news, ain't it, 10 o'clock? That God is patient with doubters. Now, I know some of you in the room don't believe that. Like some of you, because of your past church experiences or because of your own life experiences, you think God is angry with doubters. That he is impatient and highly disappointed with anyone who would ever question him or his word. But I need you to know today, your belief about God completely contradicts everything the Bible teaches about how he responds to people struggling with doubt. And I'll give you a couple of examples to prove my point, all right? Uh, In John chapter 20, we discover that one of Jesus' own disciples, he was one of the twelve, struggled with doubt. And his struggles earned him a not-so-flattering nickname. Some of you know the nickname. His nickname was Doubting Thomas. You don't even have to be a church person, and you know that, right? Doubting Thomas. He was the one disciple that for some reason wasn't there when Jesus appeared for the first time after the resurrection. And he was also the only disciple that refused to believe that Jesus was actually alive. I mean, he said to the rest of the guys, unless I touch the nail marks in his hands and place my hand in the wound in his side, I will never believe. And so the Bible tells us that eight days later, later uh, Jesus showed up and struck him dead. How dare you doubt me? And some of you are laughing because you're going, that's not how the story goes at all, right? No, Jesus showed up eight days later and he very patiently and very lovingly says to Thomas, 
Thomas, it's me. <laughs> Thomas, just, just come on over here, buddy. If this is what you need, I'm here for you. Touch the nail marks. Put your hand in my side. Thomas, I'm alive. Just like I said I would be. Don't doubt. Just believe. Or do you remember Jesus' response to the father of the demon-possessed boy in Mark chapter 9? Right, This dad had brought his son to Jesus' disciples first, thinking maybe they can deliver him. They were highly unsuccessful. And so he decides, maybe I should just take him to Jesus. And so he brings his son to Jesus. He's demon-possessed. The demon's trying to kill him by throwing him into fire and water. And this desperate father shows up and he says, Jesus, if you can, would you have compassion on us and would you help us? And Jesus says back to him, if I can, anything is possible for the one who believes. And do you remember the dad's response, if you know the story? Beautiful. He says back to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. And so, of course, Jesus says to him, whoa, 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 you're, you're still struggling with unbelief? Well, dude, you're going to have to get out of here and, you know, work on that and fix those doubts. And if you'll come back in a couple weeks, maybe I'll help you and your boy. <laughs> That's not what Jesus does. Instead, he meets this doubting father right where he is, and in response to the little bit of faith he still has left, he heals his son. Listen, I could give you countless examples from both the Old and the New Testament to prove to you today that God is patient with doubting people, but what I really want you to know is this. Because God is patient with doubting people, whenever you find yourself struggling with doubt, don't you dare sweep those doubts under the rug because you feel guilty and ashamed? Oh my gosh, I shouldn't feel like this. I got to hire this. Nobody can know about this. Or worse yet, don't allow your doubts to drive you from God entirely. Instead, like Abram, direct your doubts to God. Like with whatever faith you have left, like scrounge it together if you need to. Just go to him and be honest about what you're feeling. Tell him, God, my experience is not lining up with my expectations. God, you made me some promises, and I was sure that by now they would come to pass. I I didn't think by by any stretch of the imagination that I would still be where I am. God, I believe, but I'm struggling, and I need you to help my unbelief. Listen, if you will do that, not only can God handle all your doubts, and you do know that he can handle your doubts, right? He can handle all your doubts, all of your emotions, all of your feelings and questions. And if you doubt that, go read the book of Psalms, and hopefully that will convince you Not only can he handle your doubts, but if you'll direct your doubts to him, he'll actually use them to deepen your faith. And that's exactly what we see him doing for Abram in the text. Look at verse 6. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. I love this. He believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That word believe there in verse 6 It comes from a Hebrew word that means to lean your weight upon entirely. And so it speaks to the reliability and the dependability of an object. It's also the word from which we derive our word, amen. And so in this moment, Abram's literally saying, amen, God, let it be so. I'm going to lean the entire weight of my life upon you and your promises because I believe you're dependable and every promise you've made me will come to pass. And so what happened here? I mean, how in the world did Abram go from doubting God to believing God so quickly? Well, the answer is very, very simple. He directed his doubts to God, and God used those doubts to deepen his faith. You see, this was not a human accomplishment. 
It's not like Abram in this moment reached deep inside of himself and decided, I'm just going to try harder to believe more. No, something supernatural happened here. We know from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, that faith itself is a gift from God, something that he gives people freely so they can then place faith back in him. And so what happened is God not only reassured Abram with his word, but he then gifted him the faith he needed to believe that word. And as a result of exercising that faith, God counted it to him as righteousness. All this means, really simple, is that in this moment, God looked at Abram and he declared him perfect and acceptable in his sight. And what we learn from that declaration is this, a big truth that sets Christianity apart from every other belief system in the world. We learn that salvation is by faith alone. That salvation is by faith alone. If, uh, if you have your Bible open and pen in hand or a highlighter in hand, just go ahead and underline Genesis 15, 6, highlight it, put asterisks around it, whatever you want to do. This is a really, really important verse in your Bible. And that's proven in the fact that it's quoted in three different New Testament passages. In Galatians 3, Romans chapter 4, and James chapter 2, both James, the brother of Jesus, and the Apostle Paul, they use this verse to teach, don't miss this, that it is faith in God's word, not faith in good works that makes someone right with God. Let me just say that again. It is faith in God's word, not faith in good works, that makes a person right with God. So in other words, like you can get out of here today and do all the good works you want to do. I mean, clean up your life, fix the worst parts of who you are, come to church all you want this year, follow every rule that's out there, uh, live a moral life, be kind to people. You can do all those good works, but your, your good works will never make you right in the sight of God. Why? Because God doesn't declare people righteous for what they do. He declares people righteous for what they believe. And namely, for what they believe concerning His Son, Jesus Christ. See, the Bible is so clear on this. It teaches us time and time again that when you and I put our faith in Jesus Christ as God, Savior, Lord, and King, the one who through His life, death, and resurrection uh, gave up everything to pay for our sins, to make us right with God, that God removes from us all of our guilt, all of our sin, all of our shame, and he credits to us the very righteousness of Christ. This is incredible. Through belief, this exchange takes place, if you will. Jesus gets all of our sin. We get all of his perfection. Like God deposits his holiness into our account. The old us dies and goes away forever. The new us comes alive in Jesus. We become new creations. And like Abram, God declares us perfect, holy, acceptable, blameless, righteous, even though on a surface level we are none of those things. And listen to me. I know that's really hard for some of us to get our heads and hearts around this morning because as people, we always want to feel like we've done something to contribute toward what we've been given, right? But can I just remind us, when it comes to salvation and when it comes to righteousness, there's nothing you can do to contribute. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you'll ever do to deserve it. Your only option is to receive it. And the way you receive it is by believing the word of God. Now, I know some of you still have your doubts. And because that's the case, uh, what I want to do is take you back to the text one last time. And hopefully I can help to clear up some of the doubts that are still left. So look at verse 7. We're going to read the rest of this chapter together. 
This is God speaking to Abram again. He said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Here's a key phrase. We'll come back to it in a few moments. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. This is what's called a theophany, a visual manifestation of God in the Old Testament. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the uh, river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the uh, Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephium, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, and all the other sites you might want to throw in there, all right? But here's what's happening. That there are two elements of the promises that God gave uh, Abram back in Genesis chapter 12, okay? There was a people element. I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. Then there was the land element. I'm going to give that nation of people land to live in. What we see in our passage for today in verses 1 through 6 is God reaffirming his word about the people. And then in verses 7 through 21, God is reaffirming his word about the land. And he does this by making a covenant with Abram. This is what's called the Abrahamic covenant, okay? If you were here several weeks ago when we were studying the life of Noah, you might remember we talked about covenants. And we said that a covenant is simply a legally binding contract between two parties confirmed by an oath. A legally binding contract between two parties confirmed by an oath. We also said that in ancient Near East cultures like Abram's, that there were two types of covenants people made. There was a conditional covenant in which both parties carried responsibilities. And then there was an unconditional covenant in which only the party making the covenant carry the responsibilities. Well, what type of covenant do you think God's making here with Abram in the text? I have no idea what you're saying right now, so I'll just tell you. An unconditional covenant. Right? God, look, God assumes all the responsibility here, puts all the responsibility on himself to once again ease Abram's doubts and deepen his faith. And I want to show it to you, okay? He comes to Abram as we read in verse 7, and he says, hey, uh, just a reminder, I'm going to give you this land. It's going to belong to you. It's going to belong to your offspring. And how does Abram respond? With doubt. Well, God, how am I supposed to know that I'm actually going to possess it? And I love this. God says, dude, just go give me some animals. Give me a heifer and a goat and a ram and some birds. And so he goes out and he gets the animals and he brings them back. And he cuts them in half, all except the birds. The birds were too small. And he positions the halves separate, opposite from one another, if you will. 
So if you visualize it, he basically slaughtered and severed these animals and created an aisle down the middle of their bodies. And I know that seems really strange to some of us, but this is how covenants were made. The two parties making the covenant together would find animals, kill them, sever them, and then walk down the aisle together to say to one another, hey, if I break my word to you, if I don't hold up my end of the covenant, you can do to me what we've just done to them. Like this was a serious, serious matter. And so what we see in the text is Abram preps for this. He gets it all ready, and then the dude falls asleep. Just like zonks out, and I don't think he fell asleep because he was tired. I think God supernaturally just put him to sleep because of what we see in the text. But there he is just sleeping, and, and this great and dreadful darkness comes upon him. This is similar to the darkness we see in Exodus 19 when God shows up at Mount Sinai and he establishes the Mosaic covenant with the nation of Israel. Right Through the prophet Moses, he gives his people the Ten Commandments and the Old Testament law. It's also the same darkness that we see in the Gospels as Jesus is dying on the cross for the sins of the world. Like our sin is being transferred from us to him and the God of the universe turns his back on his one and only son, just cannot look on what is happening and darkness covers the land as God through Jesus is establishing his new covenant with us as his people. More on that in just a moment. But next, God says to sleeping Abram, hey, I want you to know All of my promises are going to come to pass, but suffering and death will precede them. Did you catch a moment ago when we read about the birds of prey, those birds that were sweeping down on the bodies of those dead animals? A lot of Bible scholars believe that those birds of prey are symbolic of the type of suffering and death God was getting ready to describe. He tells Abram, your descendants are going to suffer as slaves in a foreign land for 400 years. And we see that playing out in the book of Exodus, right? They served as slaves in the land of Egypt for over 400 years before God delivers them. And God tells him, I told you we would come back to this statement. This is crucial. God tells him this is going to happen because the iniquity or the sin of the Amorites isn't yet complete. You see, remember at the time of Abram, there were people, other people living in the land God promised to give him. And these were pagan people who hated God. God is telling him in this moment, hey, I'm going to give them 400 years to repent and turn back to me. Abram, your descendants are going to suffer for that. But man, I'm just trying to be patient with them. I'm not ready to pour out my judgment on them just yet. Listen, don't ever believe that old dead lie that God is somehow different in the Old Testament than he is in the New. He is the same God on both sides of this book. He is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, patient with sinners in hopes that they give their lives to him. He goes on to tell Abram, hey, buddy, I just want you to know you're going to die before any of this ever happens. You're going to die in peace at a good old age. I just want you to know, like, you're never going to see what I'm promising with your own eyes. But trust me, your descendants will come into this land And then finally, God, as I pointed out a moment ago, he he comes in the form of a smoking fire pot, a flaming torch. It's similar to how we see him oftentimes in the book of Exodus as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And he passes, listen, he passes through the bodies of these severed animals alone, alone. Abram doesn't go with him. Where's Abram? He's busy sleeping. God passes through these covenant animals by himself. As the text tells us, he makes a covenant with Abram. Abram doesn't make a covenant with him. This is a one-way relationship. 
God makes this unconditional covenant to reassure him yet again. Hey, dude, listen, there's nothing to worry about. There's no reason to doubt me. And there's absolutely nothing I need you to do. In spite of the suffering and death that is headed your way, I need you to know all of these promises will come to pass. And if I fail you and I don't keep my word and I don't hold up my end of the bargain, then Abram, you can slaughter me and sever me like these animals. And that brings me to the final point I want to make as we close, and it's this. That even suffering and death cannot keep us from the promises of God. Amen? Even suffering and death cannot keep us from the promises of God. In my experience as a pastor, I have often found that the primary reasons people doubt God are suffering and death. Life gets hard. Something awful happens out in the world somewhere. Or someone dies unexpectedly. And then immediately the character of God and the word of God is called into question. Have you ever seen this? Some of you have probably experienced it, haven't you? And listen, because this is often the case, I thought as we closed, I would just spend a few minutes reminding you of some truths that I pray give you confidence in the face of suffering. And so truth number one, God has established a new covenant with us through his son, Jesus Christ. And this is an unconditional covenant that does not depend on you at all. It doesn't depend on what you do, what you don't do. It depends entirely upon what Jesus Christ has done for you. Listen, 2,000 years ago, he went to the cross alone. Through his life, death, and resurrection, he conquered sin, death, and hell alone. He doesn't need your help with that. He sacrificed his life to pay for your sins, to make you righteous in the sight of God so that you could be accepted by God, loved by God, and experience his promises forever. And listen, that covenant is meant to reassure you each and every day that regardless of the suffering you experience in this life, that God loves you, that he's with you, and that he's for you, and every promise he's made you will come to pass. Amen? Truth number two. On this side of eternity... Suffering and death will always be a part of life. Suffering and death will always be a part of life. And it'll always be a part of life because sin will always be a part of life. Anywhere sin is found, suffering and death is found. But praise be to God, it will not always be that way. You see, because of what Christ has done for us, suffering and death have already been defeated. And there is coming a day in the future where Jesus himself will put those things in the grave once and for all. And so even suffering and death cannot keep you from the promises of God that belong to you in Christ Jesus your Lord. And then three, number three, reminder three. The patience of God allows for present suffering. So important that you know this. That the patience of God allows for present suffering. Look, I know it's really, really easy at times to wish that God would just hurry up and fix all the brokenness in our lives and in our world. Am I right? But come on, we all know that if God did that today, there are people in all of our lives that would never know the hope of Jesus Christ. And we have to remember what 2 Peter 3.9 teaches us. That our present suffering is not a result of God being slow to keep his promises to us. No, our present suffering is the result of the fact that we have a patient God who is giving sinful people time to repent and give their lives over to him. 
And so instead of doubting God when suffering comes your way, I pray that we would be people who view suffering as the proof and evidence that God is good, that he is gracious, that he is merciful, and that he is in constant pursuit of people who are far from him. And so let me say this, and we'll pray and close. If you are here and you are struggling with doubt today, don't hide it. Uh, Don't cover it up because you feel guilty and you feel ashamed. Don't be that person who lets your doubt turn into disbelief. If you do that, doubt will absolutely crush your faith. Instead, I would encourage you, muster up whatever little bit of faith you have left. Remember Jesus and take all of your doubts to God and be honest with him. And again, if you'll do that, I believe, truly believe that the God of the universe will use your doubts to deepen your faith in him. Can we just pray for that right now? Just all over the room. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. And if you are that person in the room struggling today, why don't you just begin to tell God about those doubts, whatever they may be. Just tell him, God, here's where I need you to help my unbelief. God, here's where I need you to increase my confidence in who you are. Maybe you're here today and you're not struggling. If, if you're not, like maybe your faith is really strong, pray for people that you know are struggling. And just lift them up by name right now. As many of you in the room are, are praying, listen, I suspect that there are others of us in this room who walked in today and we've been doubting God up until this point. Like we've never believed his word. We've never trusted in Jesus. We've just been skeptics. We've been critics. Or maybe there's just been other issues in life that have kept us from really believing God's word to us. But maybe you're that person who's sitting here right now and and somehow, some way, you just know that's true. James, everything that you've said about Jesus today is true, and I have to believe it. Like, I can't doubt that any longer. Like, I just know right now that he's God and that he died for my sins and he rose from the dead, and by believing in him, I can be right with God and know eternal life. Listen, if that's you today, if you need to trust in Jesus, then right now where you're seated, why don't you just say something like this to God in faith? Just tell him, God, I'm laying my doubts down before you. And God, I'm believing what you say is true about Jesus. That he's your son. That he gave up his life to pay for my sins. That he rose from the dead to set me free from suffering and death and hell forever. And God, right now I'm asking you to take hold of my life. To forgive me of all my sins to make me into the person you've created me to be. God, give me hope. Give me peace. Give me eternal life with you. I say yes to Jesus. Listen, with heads still bowed and eyes still closed all over the room, if you just prayed that with me, I want to ask you to do me a simple favor just wherever you're seated. Would you just lift a hand to let us know you've done that? On the floor, in the balcony. Thank you so much. Just If you'll keep them up for just a moment. Our prayer team is going to come and put a resource in your hand. And as soon as you receive it, you can place your hand back down. Thank you so much. They're coming. Just be patient. We see you. No hands up all over the room. Just hang tight for just a moment. We're coming. We're coming. 
anybody else. If we haven't gotten to you just yet, just throw your hand up real high. James, that's me. Put my faith in Jesus Christ today. They're coming. They're coming. Thank you so much. Awesome. As soon as you receive it, you can place your hand back down. Father, we thank you for being a God who loves us so deeply, a God who is kind and compassionate toward us, a God who is long-suffering and patient with us. And God, we thank you today that you're a God who can take our doubts and use them for our good and your glory. God, I thank you for these men and women who just trusted in you. God, I pray that they would experience your love and your presence in this moment. God, for the rest of us who just need your help today, God, would you be the help we need? God, meet every person where they are in whatever way they need you. And God, deepen their faith. God, that's our prayer today. God, we love you. And again, thank you for loving us. We pray all this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.